The guards tested their control over the prisoners by making them write a letter home. No need to visit in seventh heaven. Yours truly. Yours truly. Your loving son. Your loving son. And put the name there that your mother gave you. Welcome back to Whiskey and Lemon. I'm Lana Mercedes, and we are picking up exactly where we left off from last week, so let's jump right into it. A guard informed the experimenters that he had overheard a couple of prisoners discussing a massive escape plan during visiting hours. So remember prisoner 8612, the one that had been released the night before due to a mental breakdown? Well, the guard claimed that he overheard the prisoner saying that 8612 was going to round up his friends to accompany him in breaking the prisoners out. Instead of observing the prisoners and discovering what the plan was, the experimenters placed a reserve prisoner, an informant, into the cell 8612 had been in. Zimbardo requested that the prisoners be placed in the Palo Alto Police Department's old jail, but he was denied access due to the lack of insurance that the jail could provide for experimental purposes. So the experimenters sat down and had a meeting to discuss how they would prevent this break-in from occurring. The plan was to dismantle the prison after the visiting hours. They would call in more guards, chain the prisoners together, put bags over their heads, and transfer them to a fifth-floor storage room until after the planned break-in. When the former prisoner and his friends arrived, Zimbardo planned to be sitting alone in the yard. He had planned to tell them that the experiment was over and that he had sent all the prisoners home and that there was no emancipation necessary. After the group of friends left, they would bring the prisoners back into the prison and amp up the prison security. Zimbardo admits that they even considered luring 8612 back to the prison under false pretenses just to re-imprison him. I'm going to recite an excerpt from Philip Zimbardo. I was sitting there all alone, waiting anxiously for the intruders to break in. When who should happen along but a colleague and former Yale graduate student roommate? Gordon Bauer. Gordon had heard we were doing an experiment, and he came to see what was going on. I briefly described what we were up to, and Gordon asked me a very simple question. Say, what's the independent variable in this study? To my surprise, I got really angry at him. Here, I had a prison break on my hands. The security of my men and the stability of my prison was at stake. And now, I had to deal with this bleeding heart, liberal academic, effete ding-dong who was concerned about the independent variable. It wasn't until much later that I realized how far into my prison role I was at this point, that I was thinking like a prison superintendent rather than a research psychologist. After transporting the prisoners and planning to ramp up security, dismantling the entire prison, and begging the Palo Alto Police Department to utilize their old jail, imagine the experimenter's shock when the attempted prison break never transpired. No group of friends ever showed up. Zimbardo was set on making the prisoners pay for the hard work that was put into preventing a breakout. The guards increased their harassment toward the prisoners. They made them clean the toilets with their bare hands do push-ups and jumping jacks, sometimes for hours, the guards would inflict any type of anguish they could possibly think of. A priest was permitted into the prison, who made sure to ask all of the prisoners what they were doing to try to get out of the prison in the first place. To their amazement, he offered to put their parents in contact with a lawyer. And although this priest was real, he put more of an act on when he was at the prison. Everyone seemed to really take their roles on in the experiment to stereotypical levels. The only prisoner who did not want to speak to the priest was prisoner 819, 
He said he was feeling sick. He didn't want to eat and begged to see a doctor instead of the priest. They eventually got him to come out of the cell and talk to the priest and superintendent to evaluate his mental and physical state. He broke down and began to cry uncontrollably, just as the two former prisoners that had been released did. Zimbardo removed the prisoner's ankle chain, the stocking cap from his head, and told him he could go rest in a room that was near the prison yard. He told him he would get him a doctor and some food. One of the guards lined up the prisoners and had them shout, Prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner. Because of what 819 did, my cell is a mess, Mr. Correctional Officer. They were made to chant this in unison a dozen times. Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. As soon as I realized that 819 could hear this, I rushed to the room where I had left him. And what I found was a boy crying hysterically, while in the background his fellow prisoners were chanting and yelling that he is a bad prisoner, and that they were being punished because of him. Zimbardo tells the prisoner, you are not 819. My name is Dr. Zimbardo. I am a psychologist, not a prison superintendent. And this is not a real prison. This is just an experiment. And those are students, not prisoners, just like you. Let's go. Zimbardo said 819 suddenly stood up and stopped crying, looked at him like a small child awakened from a nightmare and said, okay, let's go. The next day, all prisoners who thought they had grounds for being paroled were chained together and individually brought before the parole board. The board was composed mainly of people who were strangers to the prisoners, such as departmental secretaries and graduate students, and they were headed by the top prison consultant. Then there was the parole hearing. The prisoners were asked if they would forfeit the money they had earned during their time in the mock prison to be paroled, and they all agreed. Zimbardo states that during these parole hearings, he witnessed an unexpected metamorphosis of his top prison consultant. He had adopted the role of the head of parole board. He said he became the most hated authoritarian official imaginable. So much so that when it was over, he felt sick at who he had become. He felt he had become his own tormentor, who had previously rejected his annual parole request for 16 years when he was a prisoner. The final act of rebellion transpired on the fifth day. Prisoner 416 was newly admitted as one of the standby prisoners. Unlike the other prisoners who had experienced a gradual incline of harassment, the guard's torment toward prisoner 416 was in full force upon his arrival. The original prisoners told 416 that quitting was impossible, that this prison was a real prison. He went on a hunger strike in an attempt to force his release. After several unsuccessful attempts to get 416 to eat, the guards threw him into solitary confinement for over three hours, even though their own rules stated that one hour was the limit. The method didn't work, and the prisoners were so subdued at this point, they only viewed 416 as a menace, instigating more harsh situations for the rest of them. The head guard exploited the situation by telling the prisoners they could give up their blanket and have 416 come out of solitary, or leave 416 in solitary all night. Most were so upset with 416's behavior and voted to keep their blanket and let him stay in solitary, but eventually the experimenters intervened and had the guards release him back to his cell. Here's the final excerpt from Philip Zimbardo. On the fifth night, some visiting parents asked me to contact a lawyer in order to get their son out of prison. They said a Catholic priest had called them to tell them they should get a lawyer or public defender. I called the lawyer as requested, and he came the next day to interview the prisoners with a set standard of legal questions, even though he too knew it was just an experiment. At this point, it became clear that we had to end the study. We had created an overwhelmingly powerful situation one in which the prisoners were withdrawing and behaving in pathological ways. 
and in which some of the guards were behaving sadistically. Even the good guards felt helpless to intervene, and none of the guards quit while the study was in progress. Indeed, it should be noted that no guard ever came late for his shift, called in sick, left early, or demanded extra pay for overtime work. I ended the study prematurely for two reasons. First, we had learned through videotapes the guards were escalating their abuse of prisoners in the middle of the night when they thought no researchers were watching. Their boredom had driven them to ever more pornographic and degrading abuse of the prisoners. Second, Christina Maslich, a recent Stanford PhD, brought in to conduct interviews with the guards and prisoners, strongly objected when she saw our prisoners being marched on a toilet run. Bags over their heads, legs chained together, hands on each other's shoulders. Filled with outrage, she said, it's terrible what you are doing to these boys. Out of 50 or more outsiders who had seen our prison, she was the only one who ever questioned its morality. Once she countered the power of the situation, however, it became clear that the study should be ended. And so, after only six days, our planned two-week prison simulation was called off. The experimenters interviewed all the prisoners and guards to gather their feelings upon the conclusion of the experiment. Here's what one guard had to say. I, I had really thought that I was incapable of this kind of behavior. I, I was surprised, you know, I was dismayed to find out that I could, uh, I could really be a, uh, that I could uh, act in a uh, manner so, so absolutely unaccustomed to anything I would even really dream of doing. And I, and while I was doing it, I, uh, I didn't feel any regret. I didn't feel any uh, uh, guilt. It was only after, afterwards, when I began to reflect on what I had done that this began to, this behavior began to dawn on me, and I realized that this was. Uh, uh, this was a part of me I hadn't really noticed before. Prisoner 416 said, I began to feel that I was losing my identity. That the person I called Clay, the person who put me in this place, the person who volunteered to go into this prison, because it was a prison to me, it still is a prison to me, I don't regard it as an experiment or a simulation. Because it was a prison run by psychologists instead of run by the state, I began to feel that the identity... The person that I was that had decided to go to this prison was distant from me, was remote until finally I wasn't that. I was 416. I really was my number. Here's Philip Zimbardo. The results were surprising because we, I did not expect the transformation of good kids into pathological prisoners or abusing guards to occur so quickly and so extremely. That is, we had assumed from all other research, you know, that there would be verbal abuse, they would make fun of them, there would be teasing, there would be bullying, but not this kind of, I would call it creative evil. That is, thinking about ways to demean, degrade, dehumanize other human beings. And the critical thing there in that transformation is becoming the role, or the role becoming you. 